Father, there are big things going on in our country, but I also know that there are many things happening in the lives of each person here. Um, We have couples getting married in our church. There are other marriages that are barely hanging on. Careers are changing. Finances are tight. There are babies being born. There are people who wish desperately that they were pregnant. There are sicknesses that are lingering on long after we expected them to. There are loved ones who are approaching death. And in all of this, Jesus, you are sovereign and good. You care for us in our joys. You care for us in our sorrows. Just like we sang, Lord, we need you and we need your word. So now speak to us and speak through me or in spite of me. Open our eyes so that we can see more of you this morning. It's in Jesus' good name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So one of my favorite Christian leaders is Paul David Tripp, uh, or as I like to call him, the mustache. I might have a picture up here. Uh, There he is. How majestic is that? That's fantastic. It's rivaled only by Ryan Kesselhone's beard. Yeah. Uh, in 2012, Paul Tripp wrote a book called Dangerous Calling, uh, which is all about how pastors can often be swayed and seduced by subtle sins like pride and greed that will undermine and destroy their ministry. And the book is phenomenal. It's, it's really great. But what I want to draw attention to is the back cover, which I've, I've got up there, and I've put some arrows up there, because here you can find some endorsements by some names you may or may not recognize. So uh, there's an endorsement here from Tullian Tavijan who's a former pastor who resigned from ministry after having, uh, having an affair and being caught. We have an endorsement from Joshua Harris, who's a former pastor uh, who now no longer considers himself a Christian. Uh, and then we have an endorsement from James McDonald, a former megachurch pastor. He resigned after numerous reports of bullying, deception, and misusing millions of dollars in church funds. So do you see the irony here? All right, Dangerous Calling was written to warn Christian leaders about the things that could ruin their ministry. And then years after the book was written, three of the people who endorsed the book have disqualified themselves from ministry. Bad spiritual leadership is not hard to find. On a national and on a, on a global scale, many of us are familiar with names like Ravi Zacharias, Mark Driscoll. Uh, You may have heard a recent report describing how the top leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S., the top leaders of the denomination mishandled, ignored, or even concealed reports of sexual abuse within their own churches. And then outside of our Protestant tradition, we're well aware of the the abuses and cover-ups in the Catholic Church. So so that's what's happening on, on a global scale, and we feel that. But I also know from talking with many of you that you, a lot of people here, have experienced personally bad, evil spiritual leadership. The, the misuse or abuse of authority within the place where you are supposed to feel safest, the church. Uh, some of you have felt betrayed by a church leader. Some of you have been deceived by a pastor or elder. Uh, maybe you've even been threatened or abused verbally, emotionally, physically by a leader in the church. And, and if that's you, my heart breaks for you. That's awful. That's evil, unequivocally. 
I know as well that the abuse of spiritual authority, of those who are entrusted to nurture your relationship with God, when that trust gets broken, it can often lead to your own faith being shaken. You, you think, well, if a leader in the church is this bad, maybe I don't even want to be in a church. Maybe I don't even want to follow Jesus at all, at least not if it's the same Jesus that they say that they follow. It might even lead you to being suspicious of any and all authority. So uh, I, Mike, speak to you this morning recognizing that uh, simply because I am a pastor and I have authority here at Rock Hill that there may be some here who just instinctively and honestly understandably distrust me. Now, what does all this have to do with 1 Thessalonians? So, remember what we've heard the last couple of weeks with Zach and Chad. Um, Remember the situation in 1st century Thessalonica. So, the Apostle Paul, he shows up into this town, and he spends three weeks preaching the gospel, and then a bunch of people are converted. But as soon as this three-week-old church plant gets started, Paul is driven out of the city. And we can imagine that in the city then, after Paul leaves, there'd be this kind of lingering suspicion or maybe even slander against Paul. Like, hey, did you hear that before he came to Thessalonica, he was beaten and jailed in Philippi? Man, I'm glad that guy is gone now. Like, Paul's got a bit of a reputation among non-Christians, somebody who disrupts the status quo with the message of Jesus being the Savior and the King. And so now you have these three-week-old, or when 1 Thessalonians was written, maybe a couple of months old, baby Christians who are thinking, was our spiritual mentor who he said he was? Was Paul real? Was the gospel that he preached real? Or were we fooled? And this we often find ourselves in the exact same position. Like, this is not a new issue. Uh, How do we discern the intentions and the integrity of spiritual authority figures? Especially in our context when that trust of spiritual authority figures has been eroded, rightfully so. Or or to put it in millennial terms, because, you know, I'm a millennial, how do we know if a pastor is legit? Really legit. Uh, And then, Here's the flip side of it. So, not many in this room are pastors, but if you are a Christian, then you have spiritual authority in the church. For, for some of you, that, that position is, uh, or that authority is positional. It's based on your position in the church. You're an elder, you're a deacon, you're a city group leader, you teach in kids' church. All those are spiritual authority. But even if you don't have a sort of position, if you are a member of the family of God, then you have spiritual authority as part of this family. You are a mother, a brother, a sister, a father to the people who are sitting in the seats next to you. This is a family here. And so the question is not just, how do I know if a Christian leader is who they say they are? That's a good question. The question is also, how should I act as a leader, as somebody who has spiritual authority in the family of God, the church? And in 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul is writing to answer some of those questions. So here is the big idea. I've got it up on the screen. Christian leaders do the right things in the right ways for the right reasons. Now, the problem with that is that that is so vague. That's extremely vague. And so you'll notice I've underlined those three phrases. And what we're going to do as we read through 1 Thessalonians 2 is we're going to fill in some of those underlined phrases with specifics. So what are the right things, the right ways, the right reasons? So then by the end of that time, that big idea will be fleshed out and expanded so that we have a, just a quick definition of, of Christian leadership. 
Um, and we can use that to evaluate others and evaluate ourselves as leaders. So it might make more sense as we go along. So let's just dive into 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you have a Bible, open it to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 12. I also have it up on the screen if you need it. 1 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory." Christian leaders do the right things in the right ways for the right reasons. We're going to take those one at a time. We'll start talking about the right things. And keep your Bibles open to, to follow along as we do this because we'll be hopping around all over these verses. Uh, sometimes when Paul writes a letter, he writes it in a very structured, kind of systematic, linear way as he's unpacking an argument. And then other times, like here, he writes in a more casual or stream of consciousness way. Uh, after all, this is a letter that he's writing. So we'll be hopping around a little bit. Uh, let's take a, another look at the first and second verses. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. And this is what Chad was preaching last week, that Paul was sure of the Thessalonians' salvation in Jesus because he saw fruit. He saw evidence that God was working in their lives. Verse 2, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. That is the top priority for Paul. He's saying, wherever I go, I want whoever is around me to hear the gospel, hear the good news that Jesus lived, died, and rose again so that you could be in a relationship with God. That was Paul's mission and calling. And honestly, that is the mission and calling of all Christians. It's the, the great commission that Jesus gave us in Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Let's do a quick test. Uh, at the end of every service at Rock Hill, we send you out of this building to do three things. De de delight, declare, 
display, yeah, that's right. Declare, display, and delight in the gospel. It's on our website here. That's a screenshot from there. It's on the ramp, you know, as you're coming up, on the wall out there. It's on every single bulletin. It's, it's how we as a church summarize what it means to be a Christian. Christians, we have a love for God, and we delight in our relationship with him. Christians have a love for the church, and we display the gospel of God through our acts of love for one another. Christians love the world, and like Paul, we declare the good news about Jesus, even if it costs us. So, Christians and Christian leaders, the right thing to do is to proclaim the gospel. That's the right thing for all Christians to do. But then Paul goes on and he specifies two things in particular that he as a leader did. So, let's look at those two things. What are the right things that Christian leaders do? According to Paul, one They pursue intimate relationships. And then two, they work with humble service. So we'll take those one at a time. Look at me at verse eight. Pursuing intimate relationships. Verse eight. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Sometimes as a pastor, uh, I hear the advice, never make friends with people who are in your church. You know, protect yourself. They're dangerous. Don't be vulnerable. But look at Paul's approach here. He wanted to share the gospel, yes, but he wasn't satisfied with just that. He wanted to share himself, his life, his heart. He says, I am affectionately desirous of you. You have become very dear to us. So this is good for us as we're thinking about leaders. How do we know if a Christian leader is doing the right thing? They are honest with who they are, warts and all. They pursue relationships with people, with the people they are leading. It's actually something that I I deeply admire about uh, Rock Hill, that those who have been around for a while know Pastor Kyle. (laughs) Like, We know him. We know his flaws, and he knows his flaws, and yet we respect him deeply. We know his gifts, but we also know he's not omni-gifted, and he doesn't pretend to be that. He's not aloof or put up on a pedestal. He plays on the church softball team, you know? We know him. Now think about your own role of spiritual leadership in your sphere. Do you share yourself with those that you serve? Because like Paul for the Thessalonians, you love them. You love them deeply. Christian leadership, in in Christian leadership, people are not just a project. People are people. And you want to know them and you want them to know you as well. Christian leadership is affectionate and intimate. This is why Paul, all throughout this letter, all throughout all of his letters, calls Christians brothers and sisters. Because we operate like a family. And a family doesn't stay far apart or, you know, look at me, I'm preaching, but you can never come close to me or get to know me. That's not the way it should be in leadership. All right, so Christian leaders pursue intimate relationships. Second, they work with humble service. Look at the very next verse, verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Now, do you see how this second point flows out of the first one? If you have a deep, warm, affectionate love for those you lead, then you will want to do everything in your power to serve them, to be helpful to them, and not to be a burden on them. 
And for Paul, that meant being bivocational. So we know from the book of Acts that he was a, a craftsman or a handyman uh, who worked with his hands in order to earn money for food so that he didn't have to ask new converts or new church plants to support him financially. And now Paul points that out as a demonstration of his authenticity and his integrity. He's saying, look, I didn't take a penny from you. I spend hours working my second job so you wouldn't have to give me anything. You could just receive the gospel that I'm offering you. Christian leadership is not in it for the money or the recognition, which should be clear from the way that we serve one another with humility. Nobody is above taking the trash out. Nobody in the church, because we're a family. We do all the chores, right? So let's go back to our big idea. Christian leaders do the right things in the right ways for the right reasons. And now we have the first piece of the puzzle there. What are those right things that Christian leaders do? They pursue intimate relationships. They work with humble service. Or to phrase it another, another way, they love and serve the people they lead. So now we've got that first piece of the puzzle in here. You see how this is working? So now we're going to go on to what are the right ways and what are the right reasons? So the right ways. This is the how of leadership. And this is important because when we're discerning the integrity of spiritual authority figures, it's really important that we pay attention to not just what they do, but how they do it. What is their manner? What are their mannerisms? What is their methodology for leadership? Well, in this passage, we get a lot of nots or things not to do, negative examples. Look at verses 3 through 6. Verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So, Christian leaders should not operate with deceit or falsehood. They should be truth tellers. They should not flatter or just tell those they're leading just what they want to hear. They should not use their platform for greedy financial gain or for glory, reputation, and honor. These are good tests for you to be aware of as you examine spiritual authority figures and you examine yourself. Oh, oh, am I operating with any of these kind of, maybe I didn't even notice that I was leading people for this purpose. Or, you know, you, you listen to a pastor you don't really know that well. You're looking out at, at Christian leaders in the world. You're looking at leaders in the church and you're trying to discern, I think they're doing this for money. And I know because they just asked me for 20 bucks in order to pray for them, you know, something like that. Or, or I think they're mainly doing this to build up their brand, their platform. You know, they're really active on social media in kind of an icky way, something like that. Or, you know, I, I'm not sure they're telling me the truth. They might just be telling me what I want to hear. These are good tests for us. And Paul is saying, I didn't do any of that. Indeed, look at verse 10. He says, You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. That's a wild statement. Now, he's not making a claim about salvation through his righteous conduct or anything like that. He's simply saying, I wasn't perfect, but you were up close witnesses to my behavior. You knew me, that intimate relationship, right? And if you looked at the whole way that I acted toward you, you can see that I led you in the right ways. 
So that's the negative example. What about the positive? What, what were those ways? How should leaders lead? And this is one of my favorite parts, not just of this passage, but of the whole letter of 1 Thessalonians, because Paul compares himself to both a mother and a father. Did you catch that when we read through it? Look at verse 7. Paul the mother, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And then Paul the father in verse 11, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now those two parts of it, we might summarize them as nurturing gentleness and bold exhortation. And we're not supposed to take the metaphors too far, right? Paul is not saying that fathers are not nurturing or gentle or that mothers are not bold or exhorting. Uh, rather, what we're meant to do is to look at the leaders in our lives and ask, are they leading me like a good parent would? Is this spiritual mentor in my life, are they as gentle with me as a new mom feeding her infant from her own body? How gentle is that? And then, is this spiritual mentor in my life teaching me like a wise father who sees the potential in me and wants to help me achieve it? And notice how they are both necessary for a Christian leader. Uh, maybe you've encountered a leader who is one but not the other. Maybe you've encountered a leader who is all gentleness without any boldness who will reassure you and minister to you with a soft word, but who will never challenge you, who will never urge you to obey God's word, who will never call you out when you need to be called out with loving rebuke. Or maybe you've encountered the opposite, a leader who has a pattern of always exhorting and pressuring and pushing you to change, but without any sensitivity or empathy. This is somebody who, who brags that, I'm just saying it like it is. But they never take care to say it like it is with empathy, with wisdom, with tact. Perhaps as you examine yourself, you know that you lean one way or the other by virtue of your personality or your background or something else. And Paul models for us how good spiritual authority is characterized by a style of both softness and firmness. Both. You need both. And so now we have the second piece of the puzzle for our big idea. Christian leaders love and serve the people they lead in the right ways for the right reasons. What are those right ways? It's a balance of gentleness and boldness. So now we add that, the second piece of the puzzle. Christian leaders love and serve the people they lead with gentleness and boldness for the right reasons. We've got that last final piece of the puzzle to add. This is the question of why leaders lead. What are the, the right reasons or motivations behind spiritual authority? And here's where we come to what I think is the, the central verse of this passage, the heart of everything that Paul is saying. Look with me at verses three and four one more time. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, get this, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul's driving impulse, the heart behind all of his labor and love and leadership was to please the God who called him. 
And again, we're not talking about pleasing God in a, in a salvific way. We know, and, and Paul knows, that everyone who believes in the name of Jesus is forgiven all their sins and welcomed by grace into the family of God. No, Paul is using the language here of a diligent servant who's trying to please King Jesus. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul tells Timothy, a pastor, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Or in Colossians 3, Paul tells slaves, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. The chief desire of a Christian leader is that God would be glorified and magnified so that on the last day we can hear the commendation of the king saying, well done, good and faithful servant. If anything else is our main concern, if anything beyond glorifying God is our primary aim, then we will go astray as leaders. Christian leadership is fundamentally God-oriented, God-focused, God-centered. And now here's the beautiful thing. For Paul, that passion for glorifying God was translated into a desire to lead his people well. The vertical informed the horizontal. Look with me at the last verses of this section again. Verses 11 and 12. This is the father section. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you, and get this, charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul's primary, his chief motivation for leadership was to please God. But then we see his second motivation for leadership here. He wants to help the Thessalonians in their discipleship with Jesus, in their sanctification and growth journey. Paul uses almost these exact same words in Ephesians 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then a few verses later, he explains the purpose of Christian leadership. It exists to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So church family, I do not do ministry. We do ministry. And my job as your pastor and leader is to equip you. And then your job as leaders in the church is to equip those whom you are serving for ministry. Do you see how that works? A leader leads to please God and to develop, to train, to equip so that God's people can mature, so that they can bear more fruit in their lives. And so now we have all the pieces of the puzzle here. When we started, the big idea was this. Christian leaders do the right things in the right ways for the right reasons. And after looking through these verses, now we can fill it all out. Christian leaders love and serve the people they lead with gentleness and boldness to glorify God and equip God's people. I won't say that that's a complete definition of leadership, but I think it's a good place to start. It's a good place to start as you think about your own life and your own roles of leadership, yourself in your leadership in your family, your leadership in the church here, your leadership in your work. 
It's also a good marker for you to judge other leaders by. I, I think this leader, something's a little bit off about this person's leadership style. I think it's because they're all gentleness without boldness or vice versa or things like that. And then it helps us to grow together in our leadership as a body. But here's the question we haven't answered yet. What do we do when leaders do the wrong things in the wrong ways for the wrong reasons? What happens when spiritual leaders fail? And, and looking at ourselves personally, what happens when we fail as leaders? And this is where we need to look to Jesus, the leader of leaders, right? That's what the king of kings means, the Lord of all things, the head and shepherd of the church, the one who came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, like it says at the very end of verse 12. Did you catch that last phrase in our passage? Who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Do you know what that verse is saying? Because God is the one who calls you, your salvation comes not from the influence of human authority figures, but from the declaration of King Jesus, who says you are not saved by walking in a manner worthy of God. You can't do it. I did it for you. And so now, because you are in my family, because I've adopted you, and because you are my servant, because your status can never change in my eyes, now, walk in a manner worthy of God. Do you see how that works? First, you must be called, and then you live out what you say you believe. King Jesus is unlike any other leader that you've ever seen. King Jesus always does the right things, loving his people deeply and serving them, washing their feet, healing their diseases, and dying on a cross for their sins. King Jesus always does things the right way. He who called himself gentle and lowly in heart, and yet who boldly empowers the disciples to follow him. King Jesus always does this for the right reasons, seeking to please his Father and to equip his disciples, that's you, with the Holy Spirit until the day when he returns and he finally calls us into his own kingdom and glory. And here's another perhaps comforting thought for you, for some of you at least. On that day when he comes, King Jesus will judge the evil spiritual leaders of this world. The people who might come into your minds, the wolves, the false teachers. They don't get away with it. They come to a just end. But for those who are in Christ and a member of the family of God, King Jesus will say to you on that day, not go away. No, he'll say, come in, welcome, well done, my good and faithful servant. So I want you to hear me now, church family. Even if you have been badly hurt by a Christian leader, your salvation does not rest in their unclean hands. Do not give them that power. Your salvation rests in the clean hands of a good king who loves you and who will not let you go. So as we close with a few questions of application for you to consider, I just want to begin here. If you've experienced bad spiritual leadership, have you talked to somebody about it? If you're coming from another church or a background that just left you confused in your faith, I don't, I don't know where I stand. I thought I believed in Jesus and now I'm not really sure. If that's you, I'd love to talk with you. I'd be honored to talk with you. So would our elders. So would your city group leaders. 
We want to hear your story. We want to be a place of safety and healing where you feel like you can trust those who are in authority here at Rock Hill. We'll talk more about that in a moment. I also want to say that we don't want to be a church where I do ministry, the worship team does ministry, and then everybody else just, you know, consumes, and then we go out from this. That is such boring Christianity, and that is not what God has for you. We want to be a place where we can equip you in whatever sphere of leadership you are in. So consider, how can you grow as a leader? Are you a mom or a dad? Then you are a spiritual leader in our church. And we want to equip you to train and lead your family well. Are you a single person? Then you are a spiritual leader in our church. And you have passion and insight and abilities that we want to help you cultivate. Are you middle-aged or, or older with teenaged or grown kids? You are a spiritual leader in our church. We need your wisdom and experience. We need you to mentor us and teach us how to direct this drive. Are you a teenager? You are a spiritual leader in our church. We need your energy, your new perspectives to help us. Are you a Christian? And you are a member of the family of God and you are a spiritual leader in this church. You have influence with those around you. The fellowship break that we do, that's not just get to know you. That's a time of equipping one another, of encouraging one another, of gentleness and boldness together. And so it is when we leave this place as well. Finally, do you know your leaders, and do your leaders know you? So you may not know kind of how authority structures work here at Rock Hill. So uh, as we've said, Jesus is the head of our church. We seek to do everything under his authority. And then we have three different sort of main leadership teams. First, we have our elder team. Uh, we have seven elders who lead our church in vision and direction, as well as care and spiritual growth. Uh, then we have a governance team made up of men and women who lead the business side of the church, the HR, the finances and budget and all of that. Uh, and then we have our staff, our deacons, our city group leaders, uh, kids church leaders, youth group leaders. These are the ones who do the, the implementation, the day-to-day -day operations of ministry. If you've been around for a while at Rock Hill, you, you'll know this phrase from Pastor Kyle, uh, no one should be in authority who is not willing to be under authority. Let me say that again, because that's really important. No one should be in authority who is not willing to be under authority. And so what that means at our church is that all of these teams are accountable to one another. And if a problem occurs, then we have a process to investigate that and then do what is right. So that's who leads Rock Hill. I also want to put up the pictures of our seven elders. Well, there's the six of them, and then you have me too. I'm, I'm here. I didn't put my picture up because I'm flesh and blood right now. Um, so some of these are pastors, and then others are members here who have been tested. They've been voted by you, the church body, uh, as elders. And I want you to know these men. I don't just want you to know, like, who they are. I want you to know them because they are incredibly godly and wise. Uh, I mean, Melissa can attest to this. Almost after every single elder meeting, I walk out, and I'm just stunned and so thankful and appreciative for the leaders in our church. These are incredibly good men, and their families are fantastic and wonderful. So grab coffee with them. Get dinner with them or, or their families or their wives. They are excellent leaders. And then, in the flip side, our leaders want to know you. They want to know where you've come from. 
where you're at right now, where you see life going in the future, and we want to walk that journey alongside you and equip you as best as we can. Uh, We've been calling as elders, we've been calling around to all the members in our church. Some of you might have had some of those conversations just to check in with you. How are you doing? How can we help you grow spiritually? And I think we're going to actually make this a sort of annual rhythm that all the elders will call all the members year round, just just trying to imitate Paul's example of not only sharing the gospel with you, but sharing our own lives with you. So there's much more that we could say about spiritual leadership, but let me just just end by saying it it is a deep honor to lead and to love and serve you. I love it. So let me pray for us. Father God, thank you that our salvation rests not in the hands of leaders, in the hands of fallible human beings, Thank you that our salvation rests in your mercy and grace, in your power and love for us, in your unfailing, steadfast love. Jesus, thank you for showing us what leadership looks like. And then thank you for entrusting the gospel in men like Paul and in the leaders of our church. And Holy Spirit, would you equip every one of us to know how to lead well in the sphere where you have placed us. Show us how we can grow Show us how we can testify to the goodness of our God. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.